Welcome to this episode of Neurospiced, Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia's podcast. We would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of the land this podcast is being recorded from, and pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Our seventh episode features Rosielle, they, them. During this episode, Rosielle shares their experience of being a neurodivergent person affected by a restrictive eating disorder. Rosielle explains how medical trauma and systemic discrimination has negatively impacted their recovery efforts and provides advice for ways to improve treatment for neurodivergent people with eating disorders in the future. We would like to remind you that this episode discusses topics that may be distressing for some. For example, this episode involves discussions about inpatient treatment, restraint, suicidal ideation, and self-harm. Therefore, we would like to emphasize the importance of accessing support services if required. The Birdify Foundation National Helpline can be reached at 1-800-334673. In case of an emergency, call triple zero. Today, I have the pleasure of discussing with Rosielle Daydem, who is neurodivergent and has lived experience of anorexia. Hi, Rosielle. Thank you for taking the time to chat about your lived experience. First, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and where you are in life now? Like, for example, how's your PhD and things like that? Yeah, sure. No problem. And uh, it's wonderful to be here with you. Um, so I'm a third year into my PhD. Um, and I also work as a lived experience researcher and mental health consultant. I previously worked as a peer support worker in various hospitals and with nonprofit organizations. Um, I also work at the moment on some lived experience advisory groups and with the Queensland Mental Health Commission in suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. So I do some suicide prevention work and um, yeah, I'm involved in different um, mental health work like that. That's great. Um, Can you tell us a bit about how you came to realize that you were neurodivergent and how the diagnostic journey went about for you in terms of when you got the diagnosis and how hard or easy was that? Sure. So I think um, I was involved in the mental health system from a really young age. So um, I began experiencing mental health distress um, really early in life. And I think that was very, very related to trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, So I began developing um, an eating disorder around the age of eight years old and um, was having, you know, panic attacks and things like that. Um, I had a a really early suicide attempt um, at the age of 12 and then again at the age of 14. Um, So I really... Um, I was also self-harming. Um, I had periods of situational mutism. Um, and at around the age of 14, particularly when I'd had that second suicide attempt and I was um, repeatedly self-harming, I had really um, continually asked for some sort of mental health support. And I'd been going to nurses at school and kind of repeatedly asked to see a support worker, um, to see child services or something like that. And that had been refused. 
So I was really... Why, why do you mind me asking why that was refused? Um, they Basically, I was told that they didn't want to get involved. And um, that really pushed me down further into kind of silence for a little while. But I was really trying to advocate for myself and try desperately to get help. Mm -hmm. Um, so I continually pushed for, um, getting some kind of mental health support. Um, and I, I was doing my own, um, research about what was out there. So at the age of 14, I found out about, um, child youth mental health services and, um, said that, and at that point I was considering, you know, leaving home and living on the streets, um, if I needed to. So, um, I, you know, went to child youth mental health services and, um, at that point, um, I also was, was very into routines and I, um, Mm -hmm. would sort of panic if routines changed. Um, I can relate to that. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, definitely. And have, have panic attacks. And even though I was very, um, high achieving at school, um, you know, there were things I, I struggled with that I was yeah. confused at why I struggled with them, like reading clock faces, making eye contact, tying my shoes, mm-hmm. brushing my teeth, um, like yeah. functional things that people would be like, why do you struggle with this? Or like sensory yeah. sensitivities that teachers would be like, you, you know, they would conflate that with being like, you know, you're so high achieving, you're so um, good at all these things. This stuff is really basic, and they yeah, would say I had this the same, the as same as yeah, because I couldn't yeah, tie my shoelaces either. And people were like, "But you write so beautifully, you can write perfect exactly, essays and things. Yeah. You're so smart. Why can you not tie your shoelaces?" And like people don't realize that it's actually a sensory thing. It it's more yes. skills and coordination. It has nothing to do with cognition mm. itself, but yeah, people will mock you for it and it affects your yeah, self-esteem. And that I hated, like I found having showers too intense or brushing my teeth, um, brushing my hair. Um, I would, the way I, I moved at school as well, that I, I would like to hold my hands in a certain way over my body and I would be bullied mm-hmm. for that. Um, or and I do as well put my hands under my, underneath my my legs when I sit, and people mm-hmm. don't understand. It's like points pressure and things like that. But yeah, yeah. I would hold my hands like in sort of crossed over my chest when I walked, or like in like sort of um, leaning over my body. And I learned to mask that because kids would be like, mm-hmm. "Oh, you're walking like a dinosaur," or you're like crossing your hands yeah. over your chest like you're in a coffin or something like that. Yeah, and um, yeah. you know. I would walk in, in like patterns around the school and things like that. Um, and so I was being bullied a lot for like movement or stimming. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, at, at a young age, I didn't know exactly that that's what I was doing or like eating in a certain like patterned way. Um, so that, you know, teachers sort of noticing sensory sensitivities or, or things and that being like, telling me to stop doing things that I just learned to mask, but it would increase my anxiety at school a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have friends um, and I struggled socially, um, but teachers would be like, you know, you're so um, enthusiastic. You're, you know, I had such high linguistic skills in many ways that they were like, yeah. you're so high verbal. Yeah. Why do you shut down and get it's quiet? Hyperlexia. Exactly. So, so, there was never any recognition that I had um, differing 
um, needs or need for support in many ways. I, you know, I was put in advanced classes and stuff like that. So there was, this was an idea that, um, you know, there was never any recognition that I had neurodivergence. Um, also because my father had worked in, um, with people with disabilities, um, in his twenties, he, he thought he understood, um, autism. Mm -hmm. Of course, he only understood, you know, a the very stereotypes and the stigmatizing, stereotypical, yeah. yeah, representation of like you're obsessed with uh, trains and that's it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And when he would talk about that, he would talk about what autism was. So, when I'd been in the mental health system um, as a child, and then through repeated hospitalizations, um, I would try and say, "I wonder if I could be autistic," or <laughs> I would have, sometimes I would have nurses start to say, you know, you remind me of my niece or you remind me of my daughter or you remind me of my friend or someone would say, I would potentially get excited about, you know, people would say, what are things you're interested in? And, you know, I would go on like a, a bit of a hyper-focused rant about something I loved yeah. and I would accidentally think the person was interested and I would keep talking for a while and then be like, yeah. oops, I accidentally gave them like a huge lecture. And, you know, this person got a little bit tired and I would I have not made eye contact for I a while. I was yeah. so obsessed um, with uh, ancient yeah. languages and archaeology and especially ancient Egypt. I was so obsessed with it. I had like hundreds yes, of books and yeah. I could not stop talking about it because I thought people were as interested as I was. I didn't understand yeah. that. That It was so passionate. I was so passionate and so obsessed with it. I didn't comprehend or understood that other people might not be as obsessed as I was because I thought it was so interesting that how can people not be interested by it so I would lecture them on it and I was so excited but they didn't share that and I was confused me too I thought like this was a, a like lovely affectionate thing to do for someone is like someone asked me like something I'm interested in and I would get carried away yeah. and passionate and then look back at the person and they've like got this blank checked out expression and I'm like oh oops anyway yeah. I would do that um in hospital and especially because I've you know been quite distressed for quite a while and I've been felt dehumanized and um, really, you know, for example, I'd just been, you know, medicated, forcibly held down and medicated or something really horrible happened. Like I'd been put in restraints or something like that. So then someone shows me like a little bit of, of compassion by asking about, you know, something that I'm passionate about to like, you know, show me a little bit of compassion. So then I then go on this huge rant, um, about yeah. something that I, I love to sort of self-soothe and, and also try to connect with a human being. And then I would, get a response back by they would suddenly interrupt me by going you know you remind me of someone who's autistic and that sort of kept yeah. happening and then I started to wonder about that and be like maybe I could be maybe I am and it was most often nurses who would say that not and they were the ones who would have more contact with me than psychiatrists or registrars mm -hmm. um, psychiatric registrars and so when I would raise that to a psychologist or a, or a psychiatrist often they dismissed it and they were like well no you know because you're quite verbal you're quite social and I was like well yeah but lots of autistic people are and they were like no no because, you know, you're studying psychology, you know, you're interested in, you know, art, you're quite creative. And I was like, well, so are autistic people. And I was like, no, no, they're not. And I was like, well, yeah, they are. Yeah. Um, 
because I'm one of them, I think. And then and I kept getting this, dis, you know, dismissed. But then I would, you know, talk to you and I would often get recognition about other neurodivergent people yeah. who were saying, and that was really helpful because I would have people be like, do you think you're neurodivergent? Because I'm neurodivergent and I think you are too. Yeah, and it's funny because more, we can we can recognize each other quite straightforwardly. Exactly. Like when I meet somebody after five minutes, I can tell they're neurodivergent. I'm like, this person has ADHD, like I'm I'm 100% sure. And when I tell them and after that, they, they go for a diagnosis, they get it. <laughs> I mean, so yes. far, I've got a, a, a precision rate of 100%. Every time I... I, I say somebody is neurodivergent and I tell them about it. Then they investigate and they find out for themselves that they actually are. <laughs> it's quite fascinating. It, it is. And it was really helpful to get that affirmation and validation from, from other people. And mm -hmm. the more I started to lean into that, like I started to find online communities and the more I was reading, I was like, recognizing myself and what people were saying and it started to become really healing to be like things I, I found frustrating about myself where I didn't accept about myself where I'd internalized as like stuff that was like a weakness or things like that I started to be like you know I felt more comfortable and whole about myself and more centered and and to start to look back at so many parts of my life and all of this stuff was just fitting together um, and I was starting to unlearn like these paradigms and like the mental health system about this being like this um, pathology yeah. and to start really being like, oh, actually, this is just neurodivergence. This is part of my a, a greater understanding of myself and to be like I've been existing in this completely different um, perspective of myself yeah. as all of these things are a deficit rather than being this is difference, yeah. just difference and this is strength and I've been existing in a system that was not built for me yeah. um, and view this as pathology when it isn't. Um, so it became really healing to really connect with other people who are neurodivergent as well um, and to look at that. So when I finally, um, about five, six years ago, found a psychologist that was looking at um, really understanding people's diversity, mm -hmm. um, that really changed the game for me a lot as well. Um, because um, this psychologist, when I was able to just say um, I'm autistic, it, there was never a question about that as well. That's like, great, yeah. He, he didn't need... Yeah, and he didn't need to to sort of be like, okay, let's do all these tests. He he asked like, do we need to go down like payment and diagnostic journeys for you or anything like that? Um, he was like, yep, yeah, I can see that. Um, I agree with you. Um, like, and and I think also because I I recognize that in myself, and I was recognizing more and more when I was studying my um, psych degree when we were like learning like a lot of the um, tests, like I would struggle to even administer them for other people yeah. um, because of the instructions. Like I would, and when I was doing the role plays and stuff like that, I would struggle. Um, so then I was seeing more and more, it was just affirming to me. Like I, I'm definitely, um, I can definitely see all of this stuff. Um, but yeah, it was really um, helpful to have a clinician that was just saying like, I, I don't need 
we don't need to go through a battery of tests um, and and unnecessary costs because like this is how if this is how you understand yourself um, and I I agree with you as well then yeah like that's fine yeah um, and let's like let's find out what's helpful for you um, particularly around you know your eating disorder but also around like the um, discrimination you've faced um, yeah. and unlearning that. Um, what's I going think to that discrimination is, is something that, yeah, yeah that discrimination is something that impacts autistic people so much and has a huge influence, I think, in development of eating disorders and it's not being investigated nearly enough. Um, yeah, and, and the role of discrimination in general um, and, and the impact it has on self-esteem and things like that and yeah, there's no not much research about that and not much understanding of systemic discrimination having an impact on mental health. Um, I think this needs to be investigated in the future. I think so completely. And and how much it still affects you. Like even on the weekend, I was doing some some um, workshops and someone had um, s- uh, there, there were some other uh, neurodivergent people in the workshop and they, they recognized immediately when I experienced and someone else experienced some situational mutism in the workshop as well. We both did. And they recognized yeah. immediately when I did as well and was able to help me with that. But the reason I did was someone had like cut me off and shut me down when I was trying to make some points. Mm-hmm. And the feelings that that evoked for me immediately were those feelings of being like your voice isn't valid, um, you you like you're not welcome in this space. You aren't like a person. Like it it was all of, it brought up so much for me about those like previous experiences that I've I've had about being like not really being a person and like not being like not having the time and space to be able to communicate the way I need and like the immediate need to mask. Um, and it, it just, it took, it took that support from other neurodivergent people who were there to be able to like have time to, um, find my voice again. Cause I, it did take like a few hours of complete silence in the, um, situational mutism and just having (laughs) other people there who, who like knew what that was. Um, but yeah, it, it, when that happens, it does, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting how people immediately want you to sort of communicate in a certain way and yeah. put pressures on you to, um, perform in the way that they, um, expect. And then when other people don't have that expectation and are very accepting, it, it makes a safe, a space safe for it's you again. It's a big difference. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've had that happen in, yeah. in hospital when I was in hospital for my eating disorder. Sometimes I would experience situational mutism and they were just, I feel, I felt treated as though I was just being defiant and being difficult and, you know, being told stop being dramatic and things like that when I really couldn't speak as much or, Sometimes I, I, I try, but then I start stuttering and then I become very mm-hmm. self-conscious yeah. that I'm stuttering and then I shut down completely again. And yeah, it's it, it needs to be understood more by clinicians. It's not us just willfully stop talking 
for the sake of being annoying. Um, it's just that we can't because we're too distressed about the situation, whether it's expectations or invalidation or sensory overload. It can be a lot of things. It's not just sensory overload that causes it. And I had the same thing, like in hospital, I would have that um, perspective put on me, like when I had eye contact, um, loss of eye contact or extreme difficulty with eye contact, particularly because I didn't feel safe. I would be like ordered to make eye contact and said that I was being like manipulative or regressing because I wasn't making eye contact and being like, have my face forced up trying to like be forced to make eye contact. Yeah. And then if I became mute because they were trying to force eye contact or I recoil because they're like forcing me to make eye contact, um, then they were like accusing me of like trying to um, play power games and not like um, engage in the treatment protocol and like my eat- letting my eating disorder win and things like that. Um, so then if, if I was like losing speech and becoming like situationally mute because of Mm -hmm. all of this, like threats and unsafety, then, um, sometimes it would get as far. Like there was one incident that I hid under the tape, under a table because I completely didn't feel safe. And they lifted the table away from me so that I couldn't like hide and feel safe. And then I, like retreated even further and became catatonic Mm -hmm. because like I cannot like retreat any further into my body in anywhere to feel safe and then they physically like removed me and took me to my bed um so that there was like I I literally have not been safe in my body in any way like I I it was like the level of, of dehumanization. And I think it just yeah. speaks volumes about disability justice is that Definitely. like a person has not been able to communicate safely in their body. And like the way they view someone with d- differences is that it's like, we decide how you can communicate. We decide how um, you should exist in your own yeah. body and in your own communication. And if you're not doing that the way we we think you should we're going to make you and like of course that was a massive setback in my like in that hospitalization but also in my eating disorder like that was like extremely traumatic for me and then because I was catatonic when they lay me down on my um that bed they started screaming in my face why about like how I needed to come back to reality and come back and like demanding that I talk to them and like that's probably of course, the, the, the worst way of, of, exactly. of trying like, to achieve it's, that it's 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 just gonna make things worse yeah it's like this is a person who doesn't feel safe like I didn't feel safe to make eye contact so you're for, trying to force eye contact so then I lose speech so then you're you like, demand that somebody them. feels safe. Yeah. You have to make them feel safe in the first <laughs> and place. And trying to force speech. So then because I, I'm feeling even more threatened, then I've become catatonic. So then you've physically lifted up my body, which has made me even more threatened, and then like carried me away. So then I've lost all of that like sense of safety and I'm even more threatened. And then you're screaming in my face and forcing my head. They were like physically forcing my head again to continue to force eye contact. 
And then like eventually those nurses like left the room and finally like another nurse came in and just like sat near me and then like eventually they all left. And so it took like, you know, a long time for me to feel like safe enough to like come out of that. But I think that again is an example of like how um, people are treated and um, what can happen in eating disorder settings when you also have neurodivergence as well, when you are neurodivergent. Yeah, and another thing that probably clinicians in hospital and even outpatient settings don't really understand and are acting in ways that make things worse is the context of PDA, pathological demand avoidance of pervasive drive for autonomy, is is that mm-hmm. when you demand something and, and the autistic person will do exactly the opposite or refuse to do it, not because it's a power struggle, not because necessarily they don't want to do it. It's just because the demand is placed on them and then they go into a fight or flight mechanism. Um, yes, there's a little yeah. understanding of that. And then we are framed as autistic people as just being defiant, being willfully difficult and just manipulative and things like that. And it actually makes things worse and it's not it's not a good thing and I think this needs to be improved and yeah mm, yeah for sure um so what is your experience of of having an eating disorder or disordered eating and how do you think um it was intersectional with your neurodivergence uh, what neurodivergence um traits or features um contributed or yeah were an impact factor on on your eating disorder well, I think one big issue has been that there is a, a huge separation between the, I mean, diagnostically, there's been a huge separation between understanding ARFID and anorexia and binge eating disorder and um, bulimia and like all of these things. And I think there's a huge crossover mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and gut sensitivities and all of these things. So for me, you know, I, I definitely think even though I have a diagnosis of, um, you know, severe enduring anorexia or long-standing anorexia. I think I also have a lot of features of ARFID yeah. as well. But at the moment, there's this idea that if you have uh, anorexia, you also can't be diagnosed with ARFID. And I yeah. think that's a real yeah. problem because, you know, and luckily my psychologist is very understanding of the fact that I'm autistic and also have a long-standing anorexia diagnosis. So does necessarily have to separate them because I do have a lot of sensory issues around food and always have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I see there's there being a, a very high crossover of sort of ARFID-like issues or ARFID with my um, anorexia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, of course, have a lot of um, gastrointestinal issues as well. A lot um, of autistic so I, people have have those issues. Yeah, exactly. As well. And yeah. and research and, shows that there is there is a correlation between um, IBS and Crohn's disease, which are gastrointestinal issues, and eating mm-hmm. disorders. Yeah. And the and, relationship and, is bi- bidirectional as well, so it's complex. Yeah, and I mean celiac disease runs in my family. Yeah. Um, I and of course the uh, gastrointestinal issues are made worse from the consequences of malnutrition. So, like I have gastroparesis now. Um, I have um, uh, lots of like pain and lots of issues that would have been made worse by my eating disorder, but I always had gut sensory issues early on, even like prior to my eating disorder. So a lot of that would have been like made worse. So it's bi-directional. Yeah, um, definitely. But yeah, and, and 
always as a kid, I was very focused, like in many ways I would choose foods based on their sensory qualities rather than, or like how they would feel in my gut rather than like the taste first. So I would be thinking about, or thinking about wanting to sort my food for the enjoyment rather than like the taste first. So in many ways I'll, I'll pick what foods I want to eat based on how I want to sort them. Um, and things like that. So that would make it very hard when it came to eating plans in hospital. So a dietitian would be like, we're going to make an eating plan like this. And I'm like, but those aren't the foods I want to sort. I want Mm -hmm. to sort them into categories and like those aren't foods that I would sort into categories. So I don't want to eat any of that. Yeah. I like to sort them out with colors. (laughs) Yeah. And she'll be like, well, that's your eating disorder. I'm like, no, it's not. That's, that's, if I want to enjoy food, that's my, my, and she would be like, or, or if you're sitting at a table and they're trying to make you complete your, you know, food, they, because they're not, um, affirmative for, um, neurodivergence, they wouldn't, they would be ordering you because they understand, you know, sorting food or something like that, or using what they call eating disorder rituals. They would be like, you know, that's your eating disorder behavior. So I'm like, that's a very healthy, you know, neurodivergent way of eating for me is, you know, breaking fruits apart or sorting them into little categories or like doing things like that for me is like something very, very healthy. It it helps you eat in the first place. Exactly. Um, Or eating fruits according to color, according to texture is not anything to do with my eating disorder Um, or eating with the same utensils is something that you know, it makes my brain very happy. That's not okay, stressful. I, I love to eat soup or ice cream or anything with a small spoon. I cannot eat soup with a big spoon like they like. And sometimes yes. in eating disorder settings, like for treatment, they used to say that it was my eating disorder. Exactly. <laughs> but it's just the way it is. I've always been that way. It's 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 a sensory and, thing. And part of the goals as well of being like being able to eat flexibly like all the time and choose randomly and stuff like that. And I was like, well, maybe that would be a lot of people's goals. But for me, eating same foods over and over and over again um, is also part of my neurodivergence and eating. So like I I had a lot of trouble trying to explain that to dietitians and trying to get a meal plan that would work for me because I would be like, well, what if I want to eat? all foods in the same color over and over and over again for months like that to me. And then they would sort of demand that I needed to eat flexibly in a variety of foods and all these things. And I was like, that wasn't achievable for me because it wasn't how I ate food. And that wasn't, I didn't necessarily see that as my eating disorder because I was like, but that's what my neurodivergence is and wants as well. And sure, there's interrelationships with my eating disorder as well. But I was like, I'm trying, I would be trying to explain what was and wasn't like eating disorder, my, what my eating disorder looked like and also what was important for my neurodivergence. Mm-hmm. And often I just wasn't given room to have that conversation. So I, yeah. I felt like I couldn't find any, um, room in the treatment for any of that to happen so it wasn't accessible at all yeah and I wasn't able to have room to work with my strengths so recovery just wasn't happening it was just always this impossible mess because I wasn't just given any room for that 
Yeah. And and you're not believed in your own narrative. Like you don't have exactly. a voice in how you feel. And every time you try to explain something that's happening for you on a subjective level, it's being distorted, it's being invalidated. And they know how you feel better than how you feel within yourself all the time. And that's that's a topic that comes up a lot in, in the podcast is that people like neurodivergent people don't have a say in how they feel and it's consistently Mm -hmm. and systematically invalidated to the point that they lose trust in in their their own bodies and selves which actually makes the eating disorder even worse yeah and I think things that would also become like problematic would be things like if I was trying to say um you know when I was on like being on um constant bed rest and having a a 24 seven surveillance nurse and things like that, they would be always trying to limit any form of movement. And I'd be like, can I just tap myself to stim or like find a safe way to stim that I was like, these aren't big movements, but they'll be like, no, you're trying to undermine the protocol. You're trying to, you know, exercise. And I'd be like, this isn't, this is a safe, self-soothing, soothing movement. There's um, research that's about adaptive. it. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, exactly. I'm in a very distressing setting. This is adaptive. This is important for my mental health. This is healing for me. Um, and there was no attempt at, you know, being accessible for that at all. To understand um, and validate yes. how, how that may be self-soothing for you as well. Yeah. Mm. I like to stand yeah, but, and sometimes I prefer to eat while standing up and not sitting. Yes. That was and, a huge one for me as always, well. that's always, oh, it's eating disorder, it's eating disorder, it's eating. No, yes. it's just yeah. me needing to stim. I need, I need in, sensory input. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of stuff like that, um, that I just found really, really difficult about this, this, these preconceived ideas about what everyone's eating sort of looked like, what everyone's recovery and healing was supposed to look like. Um, and then no, no room to try and have any conversation about that. It was just like, this is what it has to be. This is what it is. And anything outside of that was interpreted as, well, that's just your eating disorder. Or you don't like understand properly or you're trying to resist or you're trying to like you know cover it or something it's Um, super patronizing yes yeah um so i wanted to ask you what do you think has helped or helps uh in your recovery journey and and how do you conceptualize recovery for yourself? Because we know that recovery can mean different things for different people based on a lot of factors. Uh, neurodivergence is, is one of them. So can you t- tell us a bit more about what what helped, what helps, um, and how you envision recovery in general? I think one of the biggest things was definitely um, learning more about neurodivergence and leaning into um diverse spaces. So online spaces were huge. Um, so really dismantling some of those like internalized stigma I had and just internalized ableism. Um, mm-hmm. I really started to heal some of that self-hatred and worthlessness that I had. And that's yeah. still like an ongoing journey for me, but really starting to come to a greater place of self-acceptance has been huge yeah like there's um, a place where you belong that's yes, that's a huge thing for, for sure. me because I was bullied just like you I didn't have much friends and it was super hard and all of a sudden I found this community and they were like me I was like them and like we just accepted each other it's it's a huge thing in recovery yes yeah and I think slowing down the concepts of recovery like I think 
um, because I have a lot of trauma, not only like um, complex PTSD from from early uh, my early years, but a lot of medical um, trauma. I think um, really changing my ideas of recovery as this complete state, but I'm now concentrating on slow healing and um, harm reduction. So the the work I do with my psychologist, because I've also been working with them for so many years, we've kind of taken the word like recovery off the table um, and are just concentrating on healing as like a real step by step, like day to day thing. Um, and looking at just at, at my long term well-being as what's kind of achievable for me or what my goals are and not other people's expectations or like, you know, being in and out of hospital or anything like that. Um, anything that would make me distressed or suicidal or what is more harmful or traumatic for me, but to just be concentrating on, you know, keeping me feeling safe and autonomous and what is really going to feel safe and helpful for me. So, um, my, my relationship with myself, um, and you know, improving my sense of self and my connection to the world and my connection to other people. So just really shifting that, that idea of recovery is, you know, this idea, um, of what it should be, but also to be able to be like, to eat in the way that I feel is, you know, safe and helpful and whatever that looks like. And, you know, whatever, um, my, my goals for healing is, um, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, these, these ideas of what it should be like intuitive eating or something like that, that isn't necessarily something that I felt was helpful or mm-hmm. achievable. Because the, the research has found that interoception is often um, different in autistic people exactly. and neurodivergent people in general. So we don't feel hunger the same way or we don't feel full the same way. Sometimes it's hyper, sometimes it's hypo. And that can make intuitive eating quite impossible for us. So like aiming for it can can feel counterproductive and self-defeating as yeah. well. And I, I found that really difficult. I, I particularly have problems with my thirst cues and I mm-hmm. always have. So, you know, I um, and and I do have a lot of problems with a lot of interoceptive cues, particularly around tiredness um, and, and my satiety cues and and hunger cues as well. So like all of those interoceptive cues I find difficult. So intuitive eating, I think, was never going to be particularly helpful for me. So like I use alarms like many, many um neurodivergent people do and I eat yeah. the same foods over and over and over again um, yeah. so I have idea. to use alarm to drink water because my brain doesn't yes, let same. me know that I'm thirsty <laughs> yes so and I use visual cues as well like I keep water bottles like yeah. a lot of water bottles filled like right next to my desk and I'll carry water bottles with me everywhere and use alarms and I'll use like lots of visual cues lots of reminders and things like that. So the idea of like really flexible eating and like multiple, like lots of like flexible choice and like, I'll get overwhelmed with menus. I would get overwhelmed with, you know, I, I really rely on routine and structure and alarms and all of these things and the same, same food. So that when I go to a, a supermarket, I don't like, I, I will panic and shut down all the time. Even when I have like the same foods that I'm buying over and over again, I will still like, a whole lot of choice will make me freeze and shut down. So yeah, I think it, it's really helpful for me to be like, I'm, I'm just concentrating on what's helpful for me 
and um, that it's and it's helpful to be able to read about other neurodivergent people and what strategies have worked for them and Mm -hmm. to know that lots of other people um, experience similar things or the same things Mm -hmm. Um, and that that's actually really, really common and normal within the realm of, you know, beautiful diversity Um, and that, you know, we, we get, um, we hear like the messages of what recovery should or shouldn't be or healing should and shouldn't be or what, you know, eating disorders like are, but we just haven't been exposed to enough, um, you know, diverse stories and we should be. Yeah. That's why we, we have this podcast to exactly, allow everyone yeah. to express themselves and hopefully like professionals, health professionals can, can learn from it as well in, in, in a certain way. Um, so I was wondering what would you wish mental professionals knew about neurodivergence and eating disorders? I think to have a lot of curiosity about the interrelationship of it and um, to want to open themselves up to that to um, and not not see neurodiversity as a pathology at all yeah. um, because it's not um, to to be really interested in like the adaption of um, neurodiversity and look at adaptive skills because often I think um, neurodiverse people are extremely um, skilled at adapting and using um their neurodiversity as, a, as an incredible strength yeah. um in so many ways um and but it to, has to be accommodated That's exactly funny. and to be um curious and open to learning about how oppression and discrimination to being neurodiverse is a huge part of developing an eating disorder and how not to reproduce it within, exactly, yes, within their yeah. work. Yeah, and learning about the like power dynamics um, and not coming in with preconceived conceptions um, and stereotypes. I mean, the number of to- times I was told that, you know, you don't seem autistic, you don't act autistic. Yeah, but you're social. Yeah, but you, you know, talk in a different, this kind of way, like all of these kinds of ridiculous things that was really um, dismissive and disempowering. And then I had to keep advocating for myself just to be heard and listened to. It's which, like, which don't hard, assume yeah. you're the expert. Yeah. When 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 you're already struggling with your own mental health and, and and psychosocial issues, you don't. It's hard to self advocate if you have to self advocate on top of that. It's exhausting. Yes, yeah, and I think just just coming from the ground of you know we need to learn more. There's there's not there's there's so much more to know about neurodivergence um, that you know we there's there's so much more to keep going with so there should be just this approach of there's we can be learning so much more about the interrelationship and um we should be adopting that approach that more research needs to be undertaken and particularly with neurodivergent people um at the helm of co-creation co-design all the way through and that's how we'll keep increasing our knowledge yeah definitely so how do you think our healthcare system can better support neurodivergent people who are affected by eating disorders in terms of inpatient settings and um, outpatient clinics and things like that? Well, I think continuing on with that point is having neurodivergent people involved in um, eating disorder treatment protocols, designing 
um, treatments, conducting research um, and consulting. So in really, really engaged in that care and um, informing. Um, so look, actually really looking at how protocols can be um, inclusive and designed in a better way. Um, mm -hmm. Looking at how um, treatments can be extremely distressing um, in so many ways um, and are not inclusive at all. Um, looking at things like meal plans, how they don't work. Um, and group settings as well. Yes. Like yeah, eating definitely. in groups. I hate eating around other people. Yeah, I think that was also a huge problem for how, um, you know, that I, I understand that, that the, there is that constant concept of how eating disorders and secrecy and shame, but also how many people actually do like eating alone. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a way. Thing. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that is a really adaptive thing as well for some people. That's a way to decompress and feel calm. So mm -hmm. although, you know, that can be for many people a sign of, you know, distress for people to be eating alone, um, for many people, it's actually um, helpful to yeah. eat alone. Especially in your um, diversion people, yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, it, it always was that I wanted to eat by myself as well. Yeah. Um, that it's it's more anxiety provoking to be around other people when I'm. And it makes it harder to eat in the first place. Exactly, and there's lots of noise when people are eating. Um, and it smells just, from the plates of others as well. It's yeah. yeah. The expectation of doing small talk. Yes, uh, yeah. I just can't. <laughs> And I think also because I'm eating the same foods over and over again and because I'm sorting the food at the same time, I will get comments, you know, even people who are very used to me and used to me doing that, I will always attract comments about how I'm eating and what I'm eating. And I find that really, really stressful as well because I just want to be able to eat the way I'm eating and the way I want to eat. So it's much easier to do that when you're by yourself and you can eat standing up or you can, you know, do what however you want to eat without it being attracting all of these issues. Yeah. Um, or if you need to stim to stop and stim, then that is fine and no one else is going to judge that. That would be um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So it. Yeah, I think if if that um, was understood, um, yeah, it would be a lot more um, supportive for yeah. neurodivergent people and anyone to to feel comfortable to eat in the way that they need to and is best suited to them. Yeah, definitely. But but I think in order to get there, we need to have neurodivergent people involved at every level of designing um, these treatment and treatment protocols and designing research and involved in research at, at every level. Definitely. And, and yeah, because it, it goes along with the dehumanizing in general of, of disabled people and especially new diversion people that their voices is not as valid as the voices of experts without lived experience, essentially. And it, it, it goes, it's, it's reflected in how you are treated. And what you said during this, this episode is that Every time you try to explain to people how you feel, it's consi consistently invalidated and you don't have any reliability in telling your own story. And I think that's also contributing to research not being so participatory as it should be. Because there's, mm. there's that notion that we, we don't have any credibility in telling our own stories. So is there anything else that you would like to add? I think it's incredible the difference of 
how I feel now that I've come to this point of having greater depth of understanding neurodivergence and acceptance of myself as a neurodivergent person, Mm -hmm. the level of difference in how I feel about myself compared to when I felt that, I guess, um, level of unrest and disquiet and like self-hatred and worthlessness about myself years ago the the mm-hmm. level of difference is incredible and i think that speaks volumes about the discrimination and stigma and oppression about um neurodivergent people it's huge mm-hmm. like i yeah i and that's just been a huge part of having developed my eating disorder and the severity of my eating disorder too the destruction mm-hmm. of that is um, mind-blowing. And in many ways, I'm still grieving that impact. Um, Grief is a big topic that comes up a lot. It is. When when people realize they're neurodivergent later in life and and they look back and think, what if I hadn't known earlier? Would I still have been as traumatized as I am? Yes, yeah. Because it was in so many ways so, like, soul-destroying. And that... Like I think about that child that I was and that, you know, young person and then adult that I became and that level of hatred that I had towards myself. And Feeling I think like about, an alien. You know, yeah. Yeah. You never belong and I think anywhere. About, like that being a huge piece of where that came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that I'm unlearning that piece um, is a huge part of that healing. So yeah. I, I just hope that in future we're, getting ever closer to that not being um part of a system that people are raised in yeah and i, I, I feel think exactly how, the same. Yeah. yeah and i think how we get to that future is that we have um representation we have um neurodivergent people being leaders and being visible and being having our voices heard and being loud yeah yeah, yeah. And i feel exactly that's the same think, way yeah because like yeah. um, ever since I realized that I was autistic and probably ADHD, but I don't have a formal diagnosis for ADHD yet, um, I, I unlearned a lot and the self-hatred that I felt all my life is, is starting to fade away slowly. But it's it's a it's an ongoing process, obviously, and I'm learning more about myself and I still have relapses from my eating disorder. But I would say that my quality of life right now is as as high as it's ever been, even though I still have relapses. And well, if, if we conceptualize recovery as a binary, uh, I'm not recovered according to standards of recovery, but for my, for my own, from my own perspective, I feel as recovered as I will ever be because like my quality of life is, is much better than it has ever been, even though I have relapses and mm. yeah, some people just find it hard to understand. Yeah. And I think, you know, a podcast like this is incredible for that, you know, getting our voices out there and having that representation and, yeah. you know, people being able to, to have community connection. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So thanks. Thanks, Rosiel, for uh, your time here uh, chatting with us. And I hope you all the best for the future.